Now, I want you to try to imagine what it would be like if you lived in the first century. And maybe you, maybe you lived in Corinth, you grew up in Corinth, you were from Corinth. And I want you to think about what it would feel like. Maybe, maybe you are from Corinth, you grew up in Corinth, and you were there when Paul came and preached the gospel, and you got saved and have joined this little band of believers, this little Corinthian church that we've been studying. And how, how would it make you feel that not only in Corinth, but if someone who lived in Philippi or someone who lived in Colossae or someone who lived in Ephesus or even someone who lived in Rome, if they called you a Corinthian, you knew that that meant that someone was calling you a degenerate, immoral, sexually broken person. That it was to call someone a Corinthian was, was a, a deep insult. How would that make you feel? And, and that, that's just, I just want you to have a picture of the kind of place that Corinth was. And then I want you to realize the miracle that it is that in that, in that situation, in that, the middle of that city, there's this little church. Like the gospel growing in the most extreme place. It's like a little sapling poking up out of a rock. And you look at that and you think, how does that thing live? And somehow there's just enough earth in that little crack in the rock. And there's just enough water drips down for it to just hang on. And yet somehow it grows. It's just amazing. And then I want you to realize that the beauty for us in having the book of 1 Corinthians is how God wants us to see ourselves, see the, the beautiful picture of this church growing up in the middle of this chaos and immorality. And, and to realize that we can learn so much from them and that this, this book, especially this passage, especially chapter 8, 9, and 10, it just blows my mind. You know, I'm amazed at how many pastors listen to our podcast. And this past week, I had two pastors from different states call me and ask me questions after last week. And one of the questions was, how did you arrange it to where you would be at this place in 1 Corinthians at this time? And I said, I wish I could tell you that I was so smart and organized that I finagled a way to work that out. I didn't have anything to do with it. It's just a God thing. And then somebody else called me and said, you know, what was the, the 
response, the kickback that you got from last Sunday's sermon, I said, kickback? What are you talking about? No kickback. They're used to it. I mean, it's just another day in paradise. I mean, amen. I said, I mean, we're not, we're not in here training for, you know, to tiptoe through the tulips, man. We're, we're in here training for the heavyweight championship of the world. So we're going to get beat up and bloody and bruised every Sunday. That's what we do. We're, we're here to learn the word. And you're amazing. And this passage is, I mean, it just couldn't be more timely. And so we, we started talking about how everything in this world is dead set around hindering the mission. Remember that last week? Everything. The motive behind everything in this world is to distract you or to hinder the mission. Everything. And we've got to understand that one of the most important things for us to do is to be certain that our expectations are biblical. we got to have biblical expectations. Listen, the Corinthians were, were in a battle much like we are, and the, 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 the shape of the church is so much like the church today and there's three main expectations that, that these chapters speak to. The first one is the expectations that you have of yourself as a Christian. They have to be biblical. They have to be biblical. It is of the utmost importance that you have a biblical expectation of yourself as a Christian. Number two, the expectations then that you have of the people around you, your brothers and sisters in Christ, they have to be biblical. You have to examine them and question them and want, like, why, like, you know, why do I expect this? Is it biblical? And then thirdly, and they're all equally as important, they just go in order. The third one is your, your expectations of the culture around you has to be biblical. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Now, as everything in the world is dead set against hindering the accomplishment of the mission, I want to show you how that works. It, it's not just we have a tendency to, I didn't have time to get into it fully last week. It's, it's not just the, the culture, this outside culture that's trying to dissuade you from accomplishing the mission. It's not just this culture that hates God and therefore hates anything that God stands for, but there's layers within the culture. It's a very complex system that's devoted to your destruction. Okay? And so within the layers of culture, there are layers within culture that are close to you. There are there are factions of the culture that are against you accomplishing the mission that are in the church. You understand that? They're inside the church. 
You can't, you can't just assume that because somebody goes to church that it's safe. Because it's not. That's not the day in which we live in. Now, the easiest way for me to explain this to you is that if you take all of the layers in culture that are working to dissuade us from the mission, they all fit into two groups that we started talking about two weeks ago. Two, there's two categories. They're either trying to use license to get you to not accomplish the mission or legalism to get you to not accomplish the mission. They fit into one or the other. And we're all susceptible to both of them, although all of us, as I told you, are naturally prone to one more than the other. And here's what happens. We vacillate between the two. So there'll be seasons of your life, maybe you're like me, where your struggle was one way, and then maybe you then moved into a different season of life and struggled a different way. Here, let me just explain to you so you can understand. When I first got saved, some of you are like me, you got saved as an adult. And that's a, it's a very different uh, situation when you, you know, I've lived your whole life. I, didn't, I wasn't around religion. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. And so I get saved. I'm 25 years old. I hear the gospel. God saves me. And so then uh, I, there's a problem. All of my friends are lost. Every activity that I participate in is, is doesn't honor God. Everything, every place I went, every, all the hobbies I had, I mean, every single thing in my life had to change. And so it was, it was a very, very difficult thing. And so I was grieving the loss of all the things and the places and the people that I cared the most about because I really did care about them. And that's what made my life what it was. And so as they were slipping away, I was grieving that. And so I was a brand new believer. I don't know much about anything. And so what I started doing was I, was, I started drifting over into license. Because the question that I was trying to ask myself is, what is permissible? What, what, how, how, how can I hang on to some of these things? What are what, are, what of these things can I hold on to and still be a Christian? Do I have to lose them all? Right? And so that's what, that's what young, new believers have to figure out. Is how does this work out? And so, I mean, I'm trying to figure all that out. And, you know, I tried to live with one foot in the world and one foot in Christ. I mean, I tried that. It didn't work. And it wasn't that... The, the world didn't want me. It was just that once you become a Christian, all the things that you used to do that you found so fun and exciting and wonderful, aren't, they're not enjoyable anymore. And so I knew I had to walk away from them and leave them. And so that was very difficult. So then I, I'm all alone and I don't have anybody. So then I started to immerse myself in the church culture. And what I found out was is that when I got into the church culture, that there's a segment in the church culture that started to draw me into legalism. You see, because I'm a very simple person to figure out. I mean, if you want to understand, Pastor Tony, 
I'm going to explain it to you in one sentence. I must win. That's it. So long as I win, I'm happy. But I have to win. I mean, if we play cards, I'm trying to kill you. If we play tennis, I'm trying to kill you. If we, well, I mean, my whole, I just want to win at everything. I hate to lose. And I'm not a, a pout. I'm, I hate to lose. So when I became a Christian, when I got into the church culture, and I figured out there's people in the church that had this system of rule following, and if you follow the rules and behave the right way, you win, bingo, I'm in. Because, man, there's a way to win, and I want to win. I'm a winner, so I want to win. So I just get in that groove and start going. And I'm going and going and going. I'm thinking, I can do this, I can do this. But I'm reading the Bible the whole time. And as I'm reading the Bible, I'm realizing, wait a second. This isn't right. This, this isn't the gospel. This isn't how this works. And I, in very short notice, began to realize that the things that were supposed to be accomplished in legalism don't ever come to pass. You don't accomplish anything. You're repelling people from you. And so... I had to then retreat from that and deal with the, you know, disappointment. I mean, now I'm like a year and a half old in Christ, and I'm trying to sort all this out. Like, you know, wait a minute. There's all these factions of culture that are trying to prevent me from the mission in the church. Meanwhile, there's still plenty of people over here in Licenseville. I got people in Licenseville, and all they're doing is they're trying to figure out, hey, what can I do? I mean, whatever I can get away with, I'm, I'm in. Like, what's the minimum? What's the minimum amount of times that I have to come to church? That's what I want to do. What's the minimum that I have to do? That's what I want to do. What, and then I got people over here that are like, they hate the people over there. Hate them. Well, they hate everybody who doesn't keep their rules. If you're not in their club, then they, they judge you and they hate you. And so this whole thing, and I'm trying to sort all this out. I realize, you know, well, I've never been a member of another church. This is the only church I've ever been a member of. And so I can't really tell stories about other churches because you know I'm talking about you. Because I've never been in another church. Right? But I read stories about churches. <laughs> and books. That have all these weird rules and regulations. You know what I mean? Like, well, you can't. You can't eat or you can't drink or you can't laugh at church because it dishonors God. Are you? Mm. But, but all the people that, that believe that still eat and drink and laugh. But somehow in a particular location it's dishonoring to God. I don't know. 
then, then there's other churches that I've read about that people, you know, like have all these regulations about how you dress. You have to dress a certain way and you can't wear this. Certain people have to wear this. Other people wear that. It's weird. And, uh, but then when you see them out and about, they're dressed normally. But at church, you got to wear a certain thing. That's not in the Bible. I remember one time this man came up to me and he was hot. And he started, you know, he had his finger out and he was going to town. And he was on a rampage about tattoos. I was like, did I do something? Anyway, so he's giving me the business about tattoos. About how it's against God and na 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 and all this stuff. And so I listened to him and when he got completely finished, I said, man, you really got to make some changes. And he goes, me, I'm not the one with the tattoos. And I said, I know, but the verse that you're referring to in Leviticus 19, the verse right before that says that you can't cut the sides of your hair or trim your beard, which means unless you look like Phil Robertson of Duck Dynasty, you're pretty much going to hell. Like he was so mad about something that he never even read the Bible about. Like at least read about it, right? But you see that this whole crazy attack that's coming at us from every direction. Like right now, you can probably think of people that are making unwise choices. And think they're fine on the side of license. And you can think of other people that are wound up in things that are their own preferences. And trying to make things, trying to make everybody else feel the way they feel about personal things. And Jesus comes along. And, and here's how he addresses all this. He says, Now woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs that indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside you're full of dead man's bones and uncleanness. He said, Even so, you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You see, he's talking to... He's specifically speaking into this issue of legalism, but it's the same thing on license. See, when, when you are out there in, on the license team, you're not accomplishing the mission because you're not, you're not impacting anybody's life for Christ because you look just like everyone else. Nobody's walking up to you going, hey, I want to know the God you know. You look the same as everyone else. They think you're just a fraud. And then on the other side over here, nobody's coming up 
You know, when they get to know you, they're thinking, well, if Jesus is anything like you, I don't want any part of it. Because you're the biggest killjoy groucho I ever met in my life. And here's the thing. All the time, the answer's right in front of them and in front of us. Jesus said in John 5, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it's they that bear witness about me. That's what they're talking about, is Jesus. And so what ultimately we need to do as we're trying to sort out how do we, how do we, how do we make sure that we have biblical expectations? Well, we look at the Apostle Paul and we look at this situation that he's in in Corinth and we realize this will give us great wisdom and insight and understanding into the world in which we live in right now. You see, we can, we can ask ourselves not, not, you know, you already know if you tend towards license or you tend towards legalism. But for all of us this morning, what we need to do is ask ourselves not what are we doing, but why are we doing it? What is our motivation? Like, what is your motivation for getting so frustrated with people who don't see things the way you see them? Why? Why do you get so angry about that? What is your deep-seated, absolute, necessary reality to have to feel right? What is wrong with you? What's What's so broken that you're so emotionally tangled up in things that God's not emotionally tangled up in? Or on the other side, what are you, why are you so concerned about doing whatever it is you can do? about exercising whatever right you have. What's wrong with you? Something's wrong. Something is off. Okay, look at 1 Corinthians 9. We're going to begin in verse 19. Look at verse 19. For, though I am free from all men, I made myself a doula servant to all a slave to all, that I might win the more. Paul says, And to the Jew I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. Jews. Then he says in verse 21, To those who are without law, Gentiles, as without law. Then he says, Not being without law towards God, but under law towards Christ, that I might win those who are without law. He says, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Then he says, now this I do for the gospel's sake that I, might, I may be partaker of it with you. Now, when you hear Paul say, I need you to get this now. When Paul says, I became all things to all people. Is Paul saying that I became a gossip to the gossip? 
Is he saying, I became an adulterer to the adulterer? Well, of course he's not. Because remember, we're talking about freedoms. And so in Christ, we have freedoms, but we do not have the freedom to sin. We've been freed from sin. We're now a slave to righteousness. We have freedom to do things, but they're not sin. So that's not at all what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about all of these things that are in the, say, the the gray area. But notice what Paul says. See, he's making sure that we know that in verse 21, he says, and to those who are without law, he's talking about the Gentiles as without law. And he says, not being without law towards God, but under the law toward Christ. In other words, Paul is not a people pleaser. Paul is not a wishy-washy Christian as, as the legalistic community is accusing him of in Corinth. See, they're looking at him and they're looking at the way he's navigating things. And they're saying, this Paul is not serious. He's not sold out. He's, he's compromising. And Paul's saying, listen, I understand that I'm 100% under Christ. That's what he's saying. I understand I'm 100% under the law of Christ. So here's the question I want you to grapple with. What was it that made Paul such an effective follower of Christ? Like, how was Paul able to be the greatest evangelist and church planter of all time What was the one thing that appears as you read the Bible, as you study all the epistles of Paul, what's the one thing that appears over and over as we examine his life that that creates the difference in him? Now, if we went around the room, here's and when I said, now, what made Paul so effective? You would say things like, well, he, he had a tenacious drive. That's true. Paul was, had, a, had a, just an insatiable sort of, you know, because he was the same way towards being a Jew before he got saved as he was toward being a Christian. So Paul had this very all-in sort of attitude, which I can really relate to that. Some of you can too. You might say, Paul... You know, Paul was a, was a man's man, like he wasn't fearful. Like we talked about last week, he would just go back for more beatings and more beatings. He, it, it didn't bother him. It was terrible, but listen, the, he was more devoted to the gospel than he was worried about his own health or safety. So we could say all these things about Paul, and those would all be true, but that's not really the thing that sort of sets him apart. There's something about Paul that makes this ordinary man able to accomplish extraordinary things for the gospel. And this shouldn't be a surprise to you. Get your listening guide out. Here it is. Paul's life stands as a blazing example of what is possible when we are rock solid in our identity in Christ. You see, the thing that makes Paul different The thing that you will find if you study Paul's life that sets him apart, that enables him to do what he does, is that he knows who he is in Christ. And when you know that, man, 
Everything changes. That's what we've been learning for all of these months in 1 Corinthians. Is this issue of identity and how paramount it is. Listen, you take any person, any student, young person, middle schooler, young adult, newly married, middle-aged person, divorced person, unemployed person, successful person, senior adult person. I don't care what category they fill. Somebody with no education, somebody with lots of education, it doesn't matter. You take any human being that's alive and breathing, if they grasp a rock-solid understanding of who they are in Christ, nothing can stop them from making a tremendous difference in this world. Nothing. Nothing. This is my heart's desire for each and every one of you, is that you would understand this. I want you to think this through now. How Paul, again, because I don't know where, I don't know which side you're, you're getting bombarded from. How is it that Paul was able to live a life that flees from sin, yet at the same time he's engaging and evangelizing the people around him in a dark and sin-cursed world? Huh? You got, who, who's got the answer to that? That's what I want you to You come up and finish the sermon. I want you to tell us, how do you live a life that flees from sin and at the same time engages and evangelizes the people around you in a dark and sin-cursed world? You see, because the legalists can tell you all about fleeing from sin, and then the liberalists or the licensed team over here will tell you all about, you know, welcoming everybody in, but nobody's making a difference because they don't know how to do this. How do you do both at the same time? Bingo. Paul. That's how you do it. How did Paul learn how to do this? Jesus. Jesus was the master. But here's the thing. Of course Jesus knows who he is. You see, there was not one, not the tiniest flake of doubt, not one molecule of doubt in Jesus about who he was. He knew who he was. And that's how he was able to just fly through life without sin. He always knew what to do. He always knew when to do it. He always knew how to do it. It was all because his his identity was just unmovable, unshakable. But Paul's just a human like me and you. And he watched Jesus. And he spent time with Jesus. And see, he he understood. Paul Paul understood God's word, God's purposes, God's motives, God's agendas. Enough to know what freedoms and constraints he had in Christ. 
And he was able to ground his understanding of who he was in those things. Paul, this is the thing about Paul. Paul had unbelievably biblical expectations for himself, the people around him, and the world in which he lived. And today, I don't think the church has ever had more unbiblical expectations about itself, others, and the culture in which they live in. And I'm convinced that's why we're losing the battle. That's why there's so many people sitting through so many sermons, occupying space in a sanctuary, carrying around the Word of God and, and amounting to nothing. If they died, it wouldn't make a difference. It wouldn't change a thing. Yeah, people who know them would miss them, but no one's eternity would be affected because they're not, they're not doing anything. And I think Paul will so speak to that. See, here's, here's a summary of, because I want you to be clear about where we are so we can move forward. Here's a, to summarize it. On one hand, as long as defending our rights remains our focus, we cannot follow the way of the cross. We cannot. We cannot. I wish that you could have seen your faces last week. Remember the three questions that I asked early on in the sermon? Because I, I knew, you know, I, I know you. I love you. I pray for you so much. You have no, I know things about you you don't even know. You could have seen the faces of people. When I said, you fight for your rights because you need them for the gospel, and they loved it. And then I said, how do you explain that the gospel is most productive in the places with the least freedom? You hate that. You hate it. I could see you trying to get around it, but you couldn't. Because you can't. Because it's true. We spend so much time fighting for the wrong things. And we're not accomplishing anything that we should be accomplishing. It's not because we're not busy, we're busy, we're active. We're knowledgeable. It's just about all the wrong things. All the wrong things. And as long as we're negotiating Christ's commands, as long as that remains our practice, we can't follow the way of the cross. You can't do it. You see, you see the thing is, is you, can't, you can't have biblical expectations when you're negotiating with everything. 
Your, everything that you read in Scripture, everything that you hear and understand from a trustworthy source, source, you're trying to find the loophole. You're trying to figure out the minimum. You're trying to... You know, does, does this, how does this work? And what about this? And, you know, that doesn't work in this culture. Nah, 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 nah. Can't, you can't follow the way of the cross that way. See, Paul was able to do this to perfection. So at the end of the day, look, I, this is what I think Paul would say if he was here today. So what, this is what he would say. He would say, he would sit down, talk to you, listen to your situation. You know, he'd say, how you doing? What's going on? And he'd realize that, you know, you're dissatisfied and unproductive and feel unfruitful or whatever. A lot of you. Frustrated about the situation that you're in. Scared, uncertain, all those things. Paul would listen to all those things. And then this is what Paul would say. He would look you in the eye with all the love that his heart had. And he would simply ask you, he would say, is your aim in life the salvation of men and women? Is that your aim? What would you say? When he asked you that. What is your aim? You see verse 22 and 23. Look at it. He said I've become all things to all men. That I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake. Now look at what he says. That I may be partaker of it with you. Now, am I the only person that is absolutely shocked by that last statement? Let's, let's look closely at what he says. He says that I became all things to all people so that some may be saved. And then he says, I do this for the sake of the gospel. Now, all this makes sense. Now, what would make sense is for him to say, now... In light of this, that they may be a partaker of it with you or with us, right? Who's they? That the people that are saved, that the people that I sacrifice for, right? That would make sense. But he doesn't say that. He says that he does all this so that I can be a partaker. Why does he say that? What does that mean? That doesn't make any sense in the way that we think. Listen, this is what Paul's saying. He, Paul is saying to me and you, he is expressing that he cannot conceive of any other way that a person could be a Christian other than the way he lives. He can't conceive of another way. You see, to Paul, to follow the crucified Messiah means that you understand that you take up your cross daily, that you live in self-denial, that every day you deny yourself. That's what you do. 
that you serve the one who bought you. He, he has no concept that you could even think on any level that you are actually a saved person if you don't understand that. That's why he says, so that I can be a partaker. Because he's saying, because that's what I was made to do. That's who I am in Christ. Don't you see what I'm trying to get you to see here? Paul is expressing to you, it's who I am. You see, like, I don't have to explain to you that that I want to do things and, and be around my family, that I love my family. I don't have to explain that to you. I'm their dad, or I'm her husband, or I, you see, that's my tribe. I'm part of that. It doesn't need explanation. That's who I am. That's what I do because it's who I am. And the way that you understand yourself as part of the people that you're around determines the way that you act around them and what you do, right? The degree to which you feel a part of and responsible and connected to the people in your family dictates the way that you act because that's all you understand, right? That just makes sense. It's the same thing spiritually. Paul's saying, that's, I'm, I'm saved. That's what saved, saved people live for the sake of the gospel. That's what saved people do. There's no other way of following Christ. It wouldn't make any sense any other way. I believe sometimes I'm in my study and I... I mean, I'm just praying for you, and I'm like, God, you got to give me some insight here. Man, we, we're in a mess. The biggest mess we have is that everybody that I love so much thinks that we're in this mess, and that's not even the mess. The mess is over here. They're, they're consumed with the wrong things. They don't get it. How do they not get it? And so, and I just say, God, could you just, could you just send Paul here? Because I, I just need to chat with him for a minute. Like, could you just, I need, could you send Paul here to counsel with me for a minute? And then I thought, well, heck, if I'm going to ask for that, could you just get Paul to preach the sermon for me? That'd be amazing. Let's just let Paul do it. What would he say? I mean, he would be scratching his head. He would be, he'd be saying, Tony, what happened? How did, how did people with the freedom to read their Bible as much as they want to get so off course? get so twisted, so distracted. How, wh- who, where did this religion that exists today even come from? It's not even, it's, it's, 
It's not Christianity. It's not. It's scary. It is scary. Now you see, Paul wants us to know that following Christ is a strenuous calling. Now, now, that may be, some of you are like, well, duh. <laughs> and maybe some of you are thinking, wait a minute, I thought his yoke was easy and his burden was light. Right? It's interesting which way you thought first. But, but here's the thing. This is what I want you to understand. It is a strenuous calling, but, but wait a minute. How could it be that this God who has accomplished everything on our behalf, that's already fought the battle and won the victory, that we're utterly secure in what we have and what's ours? If the blood of Christ, and I say that with all sincerity, if, if, the blood of Christ is in all actuality been applied to your life. And you are, in fact, a slave of righteousness. Well, if everything that I need has been accomplished at the cross, why is it a strenuous calling? It seems like a contradiction. And the reason is because... All of this is true that we have. All of this is ours in Christ. And at the same time, Paul's saying, but there's all these layers in the culture that are coming against you a thousand miles an hour trying to dissuade you from the mission. That's why it's difficult. That's why it's strenuous. And so this is why in verse 24, he turns to these this conversation around these metaphors see he says do you not know that those who run in a race all run but one receives the prize run in such a way that you may obtain it now these are familiar verses now think of the context of this and everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things now they do it to obtain a perishable crown but we for an imperishable crown Paul says, because he knows who he is, he says, therefore I run thus, I run this way, not with uncertainty, period. You see that? Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. What, what did I say was ground zero in the battle against the mission last week? Anybody remember? You're such good students. Your desires, remember that? And where are your desires born? What, what is Paul beating into subjection? He knows who he is. He doesn't run in uncertainty. He doesn't box as one beating the air. No, no, he disciplines his body. He, 
He knows that his desires are ground zero. He knows the danger that the culture is always trying to get him. So he's exhorting the the Corinthian believers to run the Christian race and to fight the Christian fight in such a way as to get the prize. See, that's the thing. that's That's where we are today. There's a lot of people running and there's a lot of people fighting, but they're not doing it in such a way to win the prize. That's the problem. There's no prize apart from self-discipline, self-denial, and strict training. But there's no guarantee if those things are present either. It's more than that. See, first we got to understand, well, what does the danger look like? Okay, so to run aimlessly, that's the danger. That's to lack purpose or to go through the motions. So that's what we're trying to avoid. You can be running like crazy. You can be boxing like crazy. But lack purpose. And be going through the motions. Remember in Matthew chapter 7, the, the busy boxers and the, and the disciplined runners stand before Jesus. And he looks at them and he's like, I don't know you. And they go, wait. Didn't I do this in your name and this in your name and this in your name? Like, look at all the running I did. Look at all the boxing I did. Look at all the things. I was busy doing all these things for you. I was in church and I was doing this and I was doing that. And he said, depart from me. I never knew you. You're a worker of lawlessness. You ran and you boxed, but it wasn't in such a way as to win. How come no one's preaching this sermon? How come no one's preaching this message? How could it be that in this moment in time, All I hear is a bunch of feel-good, namby-pamby, whiny, weak, powerless, gospel-less sermons. That's not going to help anybody. That's just going to keep pressing a bunch of busy people straight into the broad, wide gate. That's all it's going to do. If you want me to convince you that you're all right, well, you came to the wrong place. I want you to know that you're all right. It doesn't matter what I think. It matters what is. You got to know. You better make sure you're running in such a way as to win. Because if you're not, you're running aimlessly. Now, When we run in such a way as to win, who do we run against? Because you can't just run against yourself. You're not the only person there. Because if you're the only one running, well, then you have to win because there's no one else, right? So are we running against other Christians? No, this isn't a competition, folks. See, now winners like me would love it if we were, but we're not. That's not how it works. Who who are we running against? Our opponent. We're running against the world, the flesh, and the devil. So we're running against. We fight against them. Because how many times am I going to say this? Because everything in the world is designed to hinder the mission. 
So we're running in such a way as to win, and to win is the mission. And so we're, trying, we're doing that, and everything in the world is trying to stop us, right? Okay. See, we're trying to reach the world without becoming the world. That's the answer nobody knows how to answer. That's how Paul, how can you flee from sin and yet be engaging and evangelizing people out of a dark and sin-cursed world? How can you do that? And people just look at you like, I have no idea. Remember when uh, the Galatians got off course and Paul said, you, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? See, that's a very telling scripture about running, isn't it? See? Well, what's setting your expectation? What's driving? So good running is running according to what? It's not according to what other people think. It's not according to anything other than the truth. And he says, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. Because him who calls you only persuades you to run in one way according to his word. That's the only way, right? So understand something. We're not running around a track. It's not repetitive laps around and around and around and around. Now, there's people in the church that do that, but don't be like them. That's the wrong race. The race you're called to is a, is a race of the further you go. It's, it's changing topography. It's changing scenery. It's changing seasons. Yes, we're not running around a track. We're running a race of progressive transformation into the character and image of the Lord Jesus. See, Paul said to the Philippians, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's what we're doing. So, when it comes to freedoms, here is the question. Most people ask this question, well, what's wrong with it? See, this is an indication that you do not know who you are. Because you know I've had many conversations over the last 30 years with people with regards to this. And when you ask the question to me, what's wrong with it? I already know. You're infantile in your belief and understanding and you have no idea who you are in Christ. Or you would never be asking me that question. How many times have I heard somebody. Bible open. Say to me. Well there's nothing inherently sinful or wicked. About this activity. And the Bible nowhere explicitly forbids me from doing it. So I can do whatever I want with regards to this. You can? Yes, you can. Now I know why you are of no effect in the kingdom of God. Because you have no idea who you are. Paul would never say that. Paul would never, ever say that. Because... Asking the wrong question will rarely lead to finding the right answer. We should all know better. You see, if you keep coming up with the wrong answer, wrong answer, wrong answer, and you can't understand, why can I not figure this out? The problem is 
you're asking the wrong question. Okay, so let's get to the nuts and bolts of the thing. What's the question? For the last 25 years, this is the question I ask myself daily. Every decision that I make, I ask this question. This is how I discern whether I'm going to do this or whether I'm going to do that. On all areas of my life that regard freedom, I ask this one simple question. That if you will begin to ask this question, everything in your life will begin to change. Because the person that genuinely asks this question from the heart is revealing the motivation of that heart. So when you're trying to decide what to do, you may not even be sure exactly what the Bible's position is on it or not. Here is the question you should ask. Does it help me run? Does it help me run? You see, because I exist for the sake of the gospel. My whole life revolves around the sake of the gospel. And so the most important thing in the world to me is not what you think. Is not my success in the world. It's not how many people like me or listen to me. It's not any other thing except for my sole focus in life is running the race in such a way as to win. That's it. It's that simple. And so I don't do anything that doesn't help me run. If it doesn't, listen, there's a lot of things that are just neutral. They don't hurt me from running, but they don't help me for running. Why would I do them? Because they take up space where something else could be that will help me run. I fill my life with people that help me run. I have disciplines in my life based on they help me run. I spend time, I sow into things that help me run. It's all about running. Everything is about running. I spend my money according to helping me run. Life is about running a race. Ask yourself, does this strengthen or weaken my faith? For the love of God, why would you ever do something that you have the freedom to do that could potentially weaken your faith? Why would you ever engage in any activity that you have the freedom to do. The Bible doesn't say not to do it, but you know in doing it, it could potentially damage your marriage. Are you insane? Or I'm asking a real question. Are you insane? Why would you do that? 
Why would you ever put yourself in that position? Why would you ever do anything that could potentially cause you to become addicted to that thing, whatever it is? Why? Why? I don't understand. I do not understand. Does this make holiness more appealing to me? Or does it distract me from other things? How many tears have I shed with people? Their lives are falling apart. Their marriage is over. Their children are fragmented. They're, everything that they held dearly is slipping through their fingertips. And I'm like, how did we get here? And it's this, well, about a year ago, I w went to my class reunion and reconnected with, or I got a friend request, or I, I saw this. I mean, it just, what are you doing? I, you couldn't pay me a million dollars. I'm not going near something. If it's going to derail the race, if it has the potential to derail the race, I'm not going near it. Not going near it. I mean, I just want you to understand something. There's a lot of people in the world who could potentially die and go to hell, and I'm not going to do anything about it. Do you understand what I'm saying? I will not share the gospel with them. Come on. Do you understand that? I'm not sharing the gospel with them. And if they go to hell, it won't be my fault because it's not on me. But I'm not sharing the gospel with them. And who are they? Anybody I dated before I got married, I'm not talking to them. Ever. For any reason. Period. Ever. I'm not doing anything that I could potentially get addicted to. I'm not going anywhere where I could be drawn into something from my past. No, I'm running the race. Does it help me run? And if it doesn't, then I'm out. It's not complicated. And here's the thing. I know who I am in Christ. And let me tell you something. What does a person end up doing? And then we're done. You can go have lunch. Talk about how warm and fuzzy I made you feel. You're welcome. What is the inevitable result of a person 
who doesn't ask, does it help me run? Hmm? 100% of the time, what happens? You run aimlessly. And the whole time, you're convincing yourself that you're on the course. But you're not. You're running aimlessly. Your aim is not the salvation of men and women. Because if it was, it would be the product of your life because your heavenly Father has already done everything necessary for you to be victorious at the mission. So you can't blame Him for your unproductiveness. It's aimless running. Paul says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. All for the sake of the gospel. The worst possible ending to my story would be that although Jesus gave everything to give me the opportunity to run in the great race, uh, He paid the entrance fee, secured the slot. Ensured that I had everything necessary to run in the race. So that when that gun went off, I'd be at the starting line, ready to go. And although he made sure I would have everything I needed to win. I got distracted and was therefore disqualified. If you're thinking this morning, man, of course you feel like that, Tony. You're a pastor. I'm so sorry for you. I'm so sorry. If you only knew, it's not for pastors. It's not for apostles. It's for you. The reason that you feel unfulfilled in this life, and it's never going to change, it will never change. Until you taste what I'm talking about. And when you taste it, because there are people all over this church who have tasted it. And when you taste it, you'll never settle for anything else. You'll joyfully, willingly, gladly walk away from anything that doesn't help you run. Because there is nothing in this life that comes close 
to the joy and the excitement and the peace and contentment and security of running a race in such a way as to win. It is the greatest thing in the world. Don't get distracted.